This is the Notable Speeches Podcast. Today, a speech related to what may well be one of the biggest religion stories of the year, the likely breakup of America's second largest Protestant denomination, the United Methodist Church. This address is by a very well-known Methodist, William J. Abraham, the Albert Cook Outler Professor of Wesley Studies at Southern Methodist University's Perkins School of Theology in Dallas, Texas. Billy Abraham is an Irish-born author, theologian, and analytic philosopher, and a prominent voice for a brand of Methodism that holds fast to the historic teaching of the Christian faith. His books include The Divine Inspiration of Holy Scripture, published in 1981, and from 2000, Divine Revelation and the Limits of Historical Criticism, both books published by Oxford University Press. Before bringing you his remarks, here's a short bit of background. Unlike other mainline Protestant denominations, the United Methodist Church has been turning in a theologically orthodox direction, largely because the denomination has grown so strongly in Africa. African members, who tend to hold theologically conservative views, now account for about half of the United Methodist Church. Many United Methodists in the U.S., however, are strongly progressive in their theological views and want the Church to change its traditionalist teaching in various areas, including on homosexuality and marriage. Just a few weeks ago, in January, a small group of United Methodists from across the theological spectrum put forth a plan to divide the Church into at least two denominations, one traditionalist, one progressive. The separation plan won't go into effect unless it is approved by the denomination's general conference in May. This speech by William Abraham was presented before the separation plan was released, but it anticipated it, as you'll hear. This address was recorded in November 2019 at a gathering of traditionalist United Methodists known as the Wesleyan Covenant Association, a meeting held at Asbury United Methodist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I want to begin on an opening sort of uh, throat-clearing exercise and being very sober and serious. I think we're at a crucial turning point, not just in our culture, but also in the history of the Western Church. And I think we're at an absolutely crucial turning point in the history of the Methodist tradition. Now, John Wesley said what God was doing in Methodism, he, he would never let it sort of disappear. I think that's a wonderful comment on his part. But we now face a clear choice. You know, sometimes things have to be put in a strict either or. Our Lord did this when he spoke of there's a broad way and there's a narrow way. And there's a broad way in which a church can be a church. And there's a narrow way in which a church can be a church. And this is the choice that we face up ahead. The broad way is straightforward. It's going to be a church which is built on sex and gender. Think about that. It's going to be a church that is built on rebellion against the conciliar policies and practices of the church. It's going to be a church that is built on non-rational means of persuasion. Fill in the details. It's a church that will be built on individual personalities and even rock star public personas. And it's a church that is going to be built on the sifting sand 
of post-Christian secular experience and cultural proclivities. I do not want to be part of a church like that. Now here's an alternative. A church that is built on our Lord's teaching on marriage and the vision of creation that informs it. Now we have a lot of work in order to unpack that, but that is crucial. It's gonna be a church that is built on respect for canon law, for corporate discipline, and for civility towards our critics and our enemies. It's a church that will be built on rational, respectful means of persuasion. It's a church that will be built on hard-won consensus in conferencing and thinking and speaking and arguing together like they did in Acts chapter 15. And it's a church that will be built on the rock of divine revelation in the scriptures and the reliably enunciated material that is given in the great creeds of the church, especially the Apostles' Creed and my favorite one, the Nicene Creed. So I want to say this is a stark and inescapable choice for United Methodists as we move forward. We can have a church built on sex, on rebellion, on non-rational means of persuasion, on individual personalities, and on secular interpretations of experience. Or we can have a church that is built on our Lord's teaching on marriage, that is built on affectionate loyalty to the life and practices and doctrines of the church, that is built on rational and civil means of persuasion, and that is built on hard-won corporate conciliar consensus, and that in the end is built on scripture and on the creeds. Now, if you hear nothing else, I want you to take that choice home and ponder it. Now to my assignment. <laughs> we are intending, unapologetically, we're intending a fresh start for the people called Methodists across the world. This is not simply a parochial North American matter. We are a global church, and we are interested in a fresh start for a global version of Methodism that is built on Scripture and on the creeds. Now, a word, first of all, on the Scriptures and the absolutely indispensable role that they play, have played within Methodism, play within our lives, and continue, will continue to play within our lives in the future. Now, what's the primary task of Scripture? My favorite text, and this is a simple one, 2 Timothy 3.16, and I'll put it, I'll translate it into vulgar bog Irish English. <laughs> it's there to make us wise up unto salvation and to enable us to become and be all that God wants us to be in the life of the church. Now, to put it technically, that means that we begin with what I call, what others call, a soteriological conception of Scripture. It's there to form us, to change us, to transform us. And that's why there's such 
magnificent diversity within Scripture. We need the book of Deuteronomy to tell us that to live a life of obedience will ultimately, in fact, be a life of health and success in the appropriate way. And we need the book of Job when our children die and we face insoluble and difficult problems in our everyday lives. We need Paul. How can we do without Paul? And we need James. We need the synoptic material and we need the Gospel of John. So what we have in Scripture, and this is why we read it every week, we preach from it every Sunday, it's because it makes us wise unto salvation. But one of the ways in which it makes us wise unto salvation is precisely that it gives us indispensable information about God and about ourselves and about how to come to God and what the future is going to be like. That is absolutely crucial and indispensable information which comes from God and is mediated through the Scriptures. Now, Wesley considered this in terms of a form of revelation. Is revelation given in conscience? That's wobbly. That can be very, very wobbly. But then there's revelation that is given in the law and the prophets. That helps correct our misdirected consciences. And then the full and final and magnificent revelation is given in the Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead and coming again in glory to clean up the mess in which we occupy. Now, I know when people talk about Scripture and divine revelation, they say, well, it's all down to interpretation. You got your interpretation, I got my interpretation, and then you go round in circles, or you develop a set of buckets, or whatever other images you've got. <laughs> now, here we just got to stand firm. Our dear brothers and sisters in the Catholic tradition wrestled with this. They said, well, we're going to need the tradition to help understand the Scriptures. But then the tradition is bigger than Scripture. We stand at this stage, in my judgment, I do, in the Reformed tradition, which says when God speaks to us in Scripture, God is not incompetent. When He says yes, we understand it. When He says no, we can understand it. And otherwise, we've got a totally incompetent deity. We have a God who didn't make us in such a way that we could hear him and understand him. And when he speaks to us in his word, well, he can't get through to us. Well, that's not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we're not intimidated by claims about the relativism of interpretation. God is not incompetent. He has spoken to us, and we're going to stand by the revelation that's given in Scripture. And we're going to be immersed and buried in Scripture to become all that God wants us to be. Now, the place of the creeds has been more controversial. That's a platitude. And I'm going to deliver a set of telegrams at this point. Now, you'll notice that already in Scripture, little creedal materials, creedal materials beginning to show up. Shows up in that extraordinary hymn in Philippians that we all know. It shows up in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul gives that beautiful little summary of what he'd received and what he'd handed on. That's the beginning of the creedal tradition. 
Why did the creeds exist? Why did the great shapers and framers of the creeds bring them into existence? Well, just as they developed a list of books, they developed a canon or list of doctrines. And those doctrines were straightforward. I believe in God the Father, I believe in God the Son, I believe in God the Holy Spirit, add a few bells and whistles, and if you got that in your head, you're not gonna be fooled. You're not gonna be fooled by television, or you're not gonna be fooled by heretics. Now they were developed in relationship to baptism. Now remember in the ancient church, you know, you had to go through a really serious period of catechesis before you were baptized. Oh, by the way, you were also baptized naked. I think that's very interesting, but we'll not go into that. <laughs> because you were really being stripped and then you got a whole new clothing in your identity with Jesus. They were developed in the context of baptism. And by the way, you were not allowed to share it on Twitter or anywhere else. Why? because the outsiders would think you'd gone mad. Read the gospels first. Read about Jesus first. Start thinking about what the good and life-giving Holy Spirit will do in your life first, and then you'll be ready for a meaty summary of the Christian tradition. And the specific goal, therefore, was to provide absolutely crucial, basic, essential teaching for the church as a whole. It's like, Albert Outler once said, it's like the people in the Irish, the two fellows in the Irish pub. They want to know two things. Who done it and did he get caught? <laughs> and you need a meaty summary of the faith at that stage, which is what our forebears in the North African church. Think about that. It was our ancestors in the North African church that developed this material. And we are indebted to them precisely for that development. Now, I think our ambivalence in this area, it's understandable. John Wesley has early polemical material against dead orthodoxy. But here's what went wrong when we lost the emphasis on the creeds as part of our doctrine. We became prey to the temptations of what I call big L liberal Protestantism. In the 19th century, we lost our nerve on the deep faith of the church. And Methodism, because of its piety, because of its commitment to religious experience, all of that good stuff, we actually, we became opponents of the creed. And the result was that began to erode the deep faith of the church. And then when you get into the 20th century, it came, became an open season we went and we borrowed and we begged and we stole anybody else's theology that was out there. And by the time we came along in the 1960s, it was a zoo and it was an incredibly difficult period. And it's even, a, it's a miracle that we have survived this long. So in my judgment, the first reason, one reason crucially for the importance of the creeds is that we have got to put those back in formally and clearly so that we are absolutely sort of secure in the core doctrines that are at the heart of the Christian faith and that are shared by Christians across the world, across space and time. 
And as I say, I particularly love the Nicene Creed because in a way it was the only creed that was ever agreed by the whole church. Now, there's a new objection that's come against all of this material. When I was trained, the objection to the deep truths of the Christian faith is that it's false, it's irrational. You couldn't, you, how could you believe that and believe in, the, in electric lighting? You know, how can you believe in history and science and believe any of this? I, by the way, I've spent a long time writing many very boring books to defend all this stuff, so I'm not gonna go in there. Now the objection is, this is not as false, it's poisonous. This is bad for your health. These creeds have been put together by people who are power hungry and trying to impose their view of God and Christ and whatnot on the whole of the church. This is a matter, it's a matter of the raw expression of power hungry church leaders in the second, third, fourth, and fifth centuries. Now, I think this is just nonsense, and I'm going to finish with that. This is appallingly bad history, if I may say so. Athanasius, our North African hero, my favorite theologian out of the early period, he was a genius, and he was a churchman of the highest caliber, in my judgment. He was run out of his cathedral five times, by the government, no less. And then the whole point of the creed is not only to preserve the deep truth of the Christian faith in a summary that's meaty and accessible, it's also there as a protection of the church against the elites who come along and always tell you, well, we know better than they did. Now, I'm gonna give you a quote at the end here. Let me give you a quote. This is from a bizarre English theologian called Donald McKinnon. I'm gonna read it, I want you to hear it. The whole exterior of the Christian church is the poor man's protection against the tyranny of the wise who would rob him of the heritage of the gospel. In a sense, one might say too, that her visible structure, and then this part, her articulate doctrinal standards, her ordered sacramental life, they represent the very lashing of the church herself to her historical moorings. The whole church is an organ of the gospel. And those aspects of her life that most perplex hankerers after spiritual religion are due to the fact that she proclaims not a possibility of spiritual achievement, but a work of redemption wrought by the Son of God in human flesh and blood. Again and again, he says, we have seen the pressure of external circumstances upon individual members of the church who have held high office within her and have usually been endowed with great personal gifts a pressure which issues in individual demands that the gospel of God be transformed into a human philosophy. And it has been the external organization of the church and its doctrinal standards and its sacramental practice and so on, which itself attests the character of the gospel. It is this and these that has preserved 
the saving truths of Christ, listen to this, Christ's little ones. And it is through the institutions, practices, doctrines of the church that the gospel is preserved from the idiosyncrasies of its members. Now, I could take longer, but there are two key reasons then why I think we've got to take the creed seriously. One, the absence of a formal commitment to the creeds has left us vulnerable to, in many ways, very interesting and even persuasive attacks on the deep elements of the Christian faith. And we need to correct that mistake in the history of Methodism, if I may say so. And the second deep reason for this fabulous material, if I may say so, the second deep reason for it is that, listen, who's going to protect the sheep from the wolves? Who is going to protect the little ones who are going to be eaten alive by church leaders, by phony intellectuals, by wannabe sort of like famous people? Who's going to protect the little ones from all of that? It is the deep structures, doctrines, sacraments, and life of the church. And within that, it is absolutely crucial that we be clear about the significance of Scripture and the creeds in the life of the church. Now, isn't it great? We're coming out of the wilderness. We've been in the wilderness long enough. We're tired of hunkering down. We want to be free to share this faith. We have our work cut out for us. We're going to have to articulate a vision of marriage and sexuality that's going to make sense and it's going to be faithful to the Scriptures. We can do that. We're going to be fine on the intellectual front. What we need, we need a fresh outpouring of the Spirit which will take all of this here. All of this here. William J. Abraham of Southern Methodist University's Perkins School of Theology, speaking in November 2019 at a gathering of the Wesleyan Covenant Association, a large group of traditionalist United Methodist congregations, laity, and clergy. We invite you to subscribe to the Notable Speeches podcast if you haven't done so yet. Search for Notable Speeches in the podcast app you prefer. And follow us on Twitter at Notable Speeches. If you'd like to email a comment or suggestion, here's the address for that, feedback at notablespeeches.com. I'm Joseph Slife. Thank you for listening.